Favorite movie is Godfather. Mm. Um, that's, I don't know why. It's kind of this, it, it's the classic family struggle, uh, but then, you know, the, the power struggle thing. I mean, the first two were excellent. The third one was crap. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, that's my favorite movie. Uh, what's your favorite Godfather quote? Ooh. Uh, that's a good, that's a good question. I, I was just thinking, I don't quote it that often. Mm. I, I, I quote more like comedy or, you know, always quoting lines from airplane or, uh, I, I don't know, just, I, I don't know exactly how my brain works. It's got a lot of random shit in it Yeah, and it just kind of makes these odd connections and stuff comes out. So I appreciate like that. Uh, yesterday I got... Somebody said something about Jane's addiction, and I was listening to Jane's addiction for uh, half the day, and I, I hadn't listened to them in ten years. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. That's uh, that's cool. It's interesting because it's like I feel like people people talk about things. You know, people talk about what I do and say it's creative, and I have this sort of sense that like media and creation stuff can be very creative or it can be very just like executing on a predetermined system. That was something that ended up frustrating me a lot in certain projects was working with certain other companies who had this very like, we just show up and rinse and repeat sort of thing. And that mm -hmm. didn't feel creative to me. It doesn't mean it's necessarily bad, but it just wasn't what I got into it for. And it's interesting because like, I feel like accounting and building a business and these other things are often sort of referred to as not creative, but I feel like they can be. And you strike me as a very creative person. And so I'd be curious, like what your thoughts were on creativity in like the books and numbers side of businesses. Yeah. So, so if you have creative accounting, that usually ends up, ends you up in jail, right? <laughs> I mean, I, I, um, it's like that, that, uh, company that was interviewing for accountants, and they just had one question, which was, what's one plus one? And uh, they get to the final candidate and they said, well, what number did you gentlemen have in mind? Um, it, it, you, you're right. It usually doesn't go hand in hand. And, and I'd say probably it doesn't. I, I think about people uh, are on a continuum of they're either process people or they're people people. And accountants tend to be very process-driven. Mm -hmm. um, you know, they like spreadsheets. They And that's what makes them good at their job. Um, but it, it's, it's fascinating to me that in reality, they have to be good somewhat with people, mm -hmm. at least in our space, because if, if they don't, then all of the technical skill is irrelevant. If you can't uh, communicate with the client, understand really what their issues are, what their struggles are, what their emotions or concerns are, then the technical skill doesn't really help you. Um, and and it's, it's kind of interesting because I, I, I don't even, I'll use a different industry because I don't want to, I, I, won't, I won't use our industry. But if you think about medicine and <clears throat> you think about, those doctors that are really, really smart and really, really good at their job, 
usually don't have the best bedside manner, right? And so, but then when you look at a doctor that has a good bedside manner, well, they probably aren't that good technically. And, and, but that doesn't matter to the patient because they feel like they're understood. Mm -hmm. They feel like they're heard. Um, and I, I think every, every job, every task requires some element of both. Um, there it's, it's not, it's not a, it's more, it's less of an either or, and it's more of a, a symbiosis of the two because right. you, you've got to put the two together. Right. Well, and it makes sense because that even I feel like lines up with, it sort of comes down to like risk tolerance in some ways, you know, where it's mm. like the more creative you're getting, the further you're getting from a known outcome, there's a greater mm -hmm. opportunity, but a greater risk. And that's true mm -hmm. of like, how are we going to distribute investment portfolios? How are we going to, you know, do any of these things? You sort of have that spectrum and it's not just like a clean binary switch. Right. Right. And <clears throat> usually when you're dealing with money, people are more conservative. I would say business owners in general, entrepreneurs are less so they're they're more risk taking by by definition and and that that uh, lines up with my experience talking to business owners if you lay out the options to them say for tax advice and you say well here's this and uh, option and these are the risks and here's the alternative almost always they go for the more risky uh, alternative they're like yeah well i'll, I'll take that risk um but it, it, there, I've, I've run into a lot of accounting professionals that are very rigid and, and it's like, no, I'm not comfortable with that. So I'm not going to let you be comfortable with it. Um, and, and the reality is, is that as a professional, whether it's an accountant or a doctor or a videographer, <clears throat> is that ultimately you serve the client. So it's not really about what you are comfortable with. It shouldn't be. I mean... There are maybe some ethics that, that come into play. I mean, certainly in, in medicine or, or accounting, there are some things that are unethical to do, but usually it's not, it's not that. It's, it's just, I wouldn't do that, therefore you shouldn't do that. Yeah. How do you think about, like, because I think about that in the context of what we do, where it's like, okay, there's a million options and I feel pretty strongly about like defining what we do believe is the best though, so that we're finding clients who are a good fit and we aren't sort of constantly at these like opposite ends of the approach spectrum. So like for what core does, how much of that is like, there's just a million options and it's all risk tolerance and we're here to serve you. And how much of it is like, we have a preferred sort of mindset to these things. Um, I, I think, at least how, how, how I see it, I, I couldn't speak for everybody in the organization, but as, as I see it, it's, it's really more of a, are you a cultural fit than, than it is, um, y yes, you need to be a service fit in, in the sense that we are definitely not for everybody. We have a very specific niche that we're trying to serve in the market. Um, but, but more importantly than that is that you want to, you want to accomplish certain things. You want to grow profitably. You have an ability to, to adapt. 
you have a uh, an ability to listen. Um, you have an ability to do what it takes, meaning you don't make excuses. Mm-hmm. Um, those are you know three of the four uh, cultural values that we have internally. And, you know, it's not like we screen for that for clients, but it, it is definitely a part of the discussion with the clients because if, it, you know, culture is not just internal, uh, you have to consider who you're doing business with both as customers and as vendors, because, it, you know, if, if they don't line up with those values, they're going to cause just as much trouble as a, an employee that doesn't have the, the same values. Yeah. That makes so much sense. Oh man, there's so many ways we could jump off of that. So I'm curious if you could speak a little bit too, because you mentioned this idea of like, generally there's process and spreadsheets and numbers to this stuff. But something that I feel like has been interesting to me as I've grown in my own, you know, business and career is this idea that like, the process is a little bit modular and like the order of how you do it and the different ways can affect outcomes at the end of the day that, you know, it's not all just as simple as like it goes through this clean funnel. So like a small example for me would be, you know, when I came into core, I was a sole proprietor. um, And we switched to filing an LLC, making an S corp election and doing the whole payroll thing. And I think year one, that was like a twelve or $15,000 tax swing for me. And right. it was like, what do you mean you just <laughs> like filed right. it differently and that makes, you know what I mean? Like to people like me, I think that that goes way over our head. So like what are some of those things that people maybe aren't aware of that are factors in this that it's not as, it's not necessarily as simple as just punch all your numbers into TurboTax and you're going to get the best possible outcome. Oh, that that's <clears throat> so. Because it is sort of like I, it's home, I don't want to say it's like a game, but it is sort of like it's whole own game and like how you are structuring and communicating and running all this stuff on some level. Well, it, it is, <clears throat> and it's it's a game that's the where the rules are always changing, you know, because because Congress can't keep their fingers out of the out of the pie, <laughs> um, and so. It's, you know, the, since, since Trump was in office um, and the TRCGA, that, that was a huge change in the tax code. But, and then you follow that up with the pandemic and all of the things that happened there. There's just a lot that it, it, it takes us as professionals for a specific um, niche of services. So you talk about accountants. Well, accountants can do a great deal number of things for a whole bunch of different types of people. And, and so we're, we're specializing in small business owners. And one of the aspects of our service is tax planning. Well, it takes us a, a monumental effort to be experts on just that segment. And so if you're not a specialist, if you, um, you know, there's still th- this industry, I, this is our 25th year. Uh, and I've seen a lot of changes, but one of the things that really has been slow about the industry to adapt is there's still not a lot of specialists. Um, there's still a lot of, uh, and, and I'm going to throw out all of the big uh, regional firms and national firms, 
you throw the top 25 accounting firms in the country out of the out of the um, mix and then you've got like the 80% of what's left over and there's tens of thousands maybe a hundred thousand providers and so there's no real um, specialization they end up just saying well I'll do a little bit of this a little do a little bit of that um, and so they're not they're not really specialists at anything and so when when someone comes in and you say well it that seemed like a, a simple thing yes and no it's simple because that's all we do and that's that you know it, it might have not as been as simple to somebody in our profession that they don't specialize in that right yeah, I mean, I'm sure this is the same thing in, in your industry and in your business, right? You make some shit look real simple. Right. Well, and I guess that's the thing that's like, I guess what's interesting to me about that is I think from an outside perspective, it probably in the same way that people could look at what we do and go like, oh, it's just you turn a thing on, you record it, whatever. And it's like, there's a lot more to it than that. As much as accounting and bookkeeping and taxes are very process oriented there is a lot of like deep skill to playing that game well absolutely just like there's you know i i have a longtime friend of mine that's a videographer so he, he's he's my age <clears throat> and and uh he was explaining to me several years ago about lighting and and just went down this rabbit hole and and i was like and that's just one aspect of what a videographer does. But he is a self-proclaimed, and you know, a, a lot of people agree that he's like a genius at lighting. If they if other videographers, if they got a, a problem with lighting, they, they go to him. And you know, that takes the, the, obviously there's a lot of technical skill, a lot of technical understanding. Um, but it's also the experience and the nuance, the stuff that you can't necessarily even verbalize. You just know how to how it works. Um, and and I think you're right. Most people, when they think accountants, they don't think that there is that nuance. They think it's it's debits and credits or black and white. Right. And I go back to that joke. Well, what number did you have in mind? Right. <laughs> so, what's your thought on? Because I do feel like I've talked to a lot of people who are either like a oh, well, I already do all my own stuff and it's fine. You know, I, no one, I don't know anyone who loves the amount of money they have to give the IRS every year, but some people feel fine about it. And then I talk to other people who are like some version of, oh, yeah, I know someone who's great. I haven't paid taxes in six years, which is a different kind of suspicious to me. And so, like, I would just be curious your thoughts on, like, the difference between doing a good job and like operating with integrity in the game that you're playing? Well, that, that's a, that's a great question. And it's a conversation I've had internally um, with our team because the reality is, and this, this goes to pretty much any profession. Um, the reality is you don't know your, your customer, your client does not necessarily know whether you do a good job or whether you're good at your job. They only know if they like the outcome. And sometimes the, the outcome that they want or they perceive as good is not necessarily 
objectively good, like someone that doesn't pay taxes. Well, it could be that, you know, they just got a crappy business and they're not making any money and okay. But it also could be that they are taking risks that they're not even aware of. You know, someone someone gives them a tax return and, and it doesn't show any tax. And I'm like, oh, great. But, you know, if you've done that for eight years and you're like in the back of your mind, like, well, I, I think I've done better than that. You know, you you it, you get into that situation where you're you're saying it's a good outcome, but it really isn't a good outcome. Um, but you know that that's why it all boils down to trust. You know, you you either trust the professional that they have your best interest at heart, they understand your situation, and they're competent to take care of it. But if uh, you know, you you talk about people uh, that, that like to do their own bookkeeping or like to do their own accounting, I, I can tell you that I have never once seen a set of financial statements that a client, a small business has prepared that uh, is, is accurate. I mean, and, and I don't mean that of like, well, I decided to code this to office expense and instead of, you know, miscellaneous. It's like, this is is fundamentally not correct, mm. um, and and I think it's kind of like you would you would look at a video objectively and say, God, there's some really basic things that are not right about this. Right. Uh, but to the layman, they they don't know. That right. They're, like they, you know, structurally, they, it's not built properly. Right. Right. Or or the lighting is just like, what the hell did they film this with? Right. Or, you know. Um, and and that's that's the thing. I, I think QuickBooks and Intuit over the last twenty five years has done a tremendous job of convincing people that they can be their own accountants. And and it's and it's kind of like this analogy. QuickBooks is a tool. Um, it, it is nothing more than that. And the ability of the person to use a tool is a different thing. So if I give you a hammer, which is a pretty simple tool, you may or may not be proficient at it. Saw is a little more complicated and a lot more dangerous than a hammer. But then if I if I give you a complex piece of machinery and you don't know what you're doing, you're, you're not gonna, even though it may be the best machine out there, it doesn't make you more competent to use it. Right. And that's where QuickBooks has done an excellent job for them uh, and growing that into it, uh, that business for into it. But for the, the business owner, the ability to have financial information that is accurate, timely, and complete, um, it, it hasn't helped them at all. It, it, it's, it's a great tool for someone that knows accounting right. to use, but not somebody that has no interest in accounting. Right. Well, and I feel like that's one of those things that's, for me, like for years, you know, I had QuickBooks, whatever version of it was, online, self-employed, something. And the minute I got busy, we would fall behind on it. And so, and then quickly you would be behind it for the whole year. And so then come like November, November December, I'd be like, oh boy, <laughs> tax season's coming. And then we'd start like panic uh, classifying everything we could from the last year. 
And especially for, I feel like especially for what we do, maybe this is true of all businesses, but it always felt like nothing we did fit into the categories. It's like, I don't know what to code any of this stuff as. Like you've got to, we had to buy a hundred dollars in peanuts to make a video. Like, what do you call that? You know, like there's, there's all these things that are just non-obvious when you're looking at a bunch of codes. And so you just start slapping codes on things. Um, And then you get to the end of that. And I would like, send all that to a CPA. I, I always had someone at least like go through it for me, but even they would often be like some version of basically like, what the hell is this? Like there's categories missing. There's categories that are way the heck all over the place. And then would do the best to file it. And then I would sit there and go, I owe somewhere between 2000 and $18,000 in one check in the next month. And we will find out what that is. And like that, that sort of like puckering, I got really good at, I just got used to it for like eight years. I would just bank money all year and be like, come April, right. I'm going to cut a big check. Um, but that was one of the things that's like, I was like, man, I'm not doing this again. Um, and that was part of when I reached out, you know, and, and Jeremy and the team got us all set up and just the like, not thinking about it, not worrying about, I don't know what to code this stuff as, and I don't really care. Like they'll ask me if there's any questions and it's going to get taken care of. And I'm going to get a thing that's like, Hey, here's where your estimates are at. Here's what we're thinking. And that there's like no surprises was such Mm -hmm. a massive mental bandwidth thing for me. Like not even the, the time and the money is huge, but just from like a stress level thing, having someone else take care of that has been so big. And I feel like it was something that I just didn't even know was an option before to like have someone just take care of all of that stuff for me. Well, yeah. And, and you, you, you referenced your experience before where you would come at, at the end of the year and you'd bring your stuff, you know, out of, out of QuickBooks and you'd give it to them to, to do a tax return. We actually stopped doing that about five years ago as, as a, uh, a service. Like if you came to us, it's like, sorry, we, we're not going to do it because what we, what we learned was you're trying to compress a year's worth of work into three months. So you can't give time and attention to anybody. You're hurried, you're stressed and the inevitable outcome, it may not be this year or it's going to be some year in the future where you're going to get a surprise and you're going to be pissed and it's going to be our fault. And so we're like, why do, you know, if there are plenty of people to do it that way, if people want it to want to do it that way, that's fine. But like you said, you don't know that there is something better. And frankly, it's, it's, that's the worst way to do it. And I wish more accountants would just say, hey, we're not going to do that anymore. Or maybe just jack up their fees so it was like, you know, I'm not going to, if, if you if you come in at the end of the year with your stuff and expect it back in 30 days, you're going to pay twice what I would normally charge you. Right. Yeah, it does seem like that's just sort of like the expectation. I was curious about that since you guys have, a, at least let's say most people from my understanding, on the sort of like annual um, cycle, does this time of year still get crazy for you guys or is it more consistent by the nature of the way you do things now? Well, we can't take the, the, the human element out of, out of the fact that, uh, people, our clients, myself, everybody don't want, we avoid pain. 
And it's kind of like, if I didn't ever have to go to the dentist, I never would. I mean, you know, I want clean teeth. I want the, the outcome of, of going to the dentist. But the process of going to the dentist, I don't particularly enjoy. Right. Um, and so people postpone that, even if it, if it just means I'm going to collect all my stuff or I'm going to answer a questionnaire or whatever. And so there is some, some um, of that. But I have a colleague uh, that works in a, in a similar size company that does uh, specialize in a specific small business segment, but they're very much old school. And, you know, from about uh, February through, you know, April 15th, he's working 80, 90, 100 hours a week. And it's like, why? Yeah. I, and he's my age. I'm like, why? And he keeps he keeps making it sound like, well, there's not another choice. That's just the way it. That's just the way it is. And I'm like, no, dude, it, it's not. It, it you know, it, it's that self limiting belief that all of us have. We all have these self limiting beliefs that, you know, that's just the way something is. Um, but you know, rarely do we actually question why we believe that and is there an alternative and that's why i love working with entrepreneurs because that's what that's what we do is we we see opportunities we see problems um inefficiencies things that that could be improved and we do it and that's that's why i love what i do is because i feel like as far as impacting society um i think entrepreneurs are just a different different level. I mean, you know, not not to not to say that people that aren't entrepreneurs are somehow less. It's just that entrepreneurs are a special breed, and they um, they do things that other people can't or won't. Um, having said that, I, I you know, having worked with entrepreneurs um, most of my professional life, even. Uh, not not just in my in my work, but also in a lot of my um, uh, oh, I, I do a lot of work uh, with Entrepreneurs Organization, which is um, a great outfit designed to support entrepreneurs, so a nonprofit. So, in working with them, what I what I've realized is we are. Um, there's something weird about us, you know, like being in a marriage or a long-time relationship with an entrepreneur's got to be difficult. I mean, we do weird shit. Um, and we don't, we don't function. We don't think the same way everybody else does. Um, but that's what you've got to do to identify those, those opportunities and take that risk to fix it. Right, 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 right. Yeah, that that sense of like to, to to take the time and money and everything else necessary to bet on the idea that you to have the audacity in some ways to bet on the idea that you can do something better in the way than it's being done right now is like not a common thing. No. No, I mean think back about when you were in grade school, right? I mean I can probably tell without knowing anything else about you, you you probably were a discipline problem of some sort. Um, you, you probably were always in trouble for talking. 
or, or interrupting or asking questions that the teacher thought, well, that's completely irrelevant. Evan, we're, we're over here. Why, right. why are you talking about that? You know, but that's, that's the entrepreneur. Right. Well, and that's one of the things, uh, it's actually what I just written down that I've really appreciated about working with core is for the things that I don't care or need to know, it's pretty simple to leave it on autopilot. But then like Jeremy has also been super helpful for me when I'm like, I need to take 20 or 30 minutes and just ask you a lot of really potentially dumb questions so that I actually understand how this all works. And like, that's really valuable for me because I feel like to the whole thing of like talking to a professional, there's all these things people talk about inside the industry that you like heard from some friend that's like, you know, all these things about what you can write off and what you can't write off and leasing versus owning vehicles and whatever. And just like getting to like talk to a professional and be like, okay, what are actually the options here? What are the pros and cons of each option? And being able to understand that because I am the kind of person who likes to understand those options has been really, really helpful. Mm -hmm. Well, and then, then what we, we like to do, uh, in addition to that is, you know, be that objective observer. Um, you know, there's a lot of people in an entrepreneur's world that either don't understand or don't really care what their, their problems are, uh, or they just tell them what they want to hear. Um, and which is difficult for an entrepreneur because an entrepreneur by definition has to live somewhat in a fantasy land. They have to see things that aren't yet there. Um, they have to envision that. And it's easy for an entrepreneur to get sucked into that and, and miss the reality of what's going on currently. And I feel like core and, and any, any competent financial advisor has a unique role to play there because they can, they can say, Evan, I know you've been telling me that this is what's happening, but I'm telling you the numbers don't reflect that. Right. The, you know, I, I, what you're doing doesn't make sense. It's not jiving with what I'm seeing. Um, and having that kind of uh, relationship as an entrepreneur is critical. Because I know from experience, you, you can go through, you can go through life as an entrepreneur and get no pushback from anybody. Right. Uh, you know, no one that's going to tell the emperor he has no clothes until it's too late. Right. Well, and that's something that I think, again, just to speak to my experience, I've seen so much in my own life and the life of people around me where it's like, you you quickly get into bigger numbers than you're used to coming in bigger expenses than you're used to going out and you're sort of playing the like bank balance accounting game. And it's like, well, I, I know I've got money coming in in the future. Um, and then always sort of feeling like you don't know quite where you are. And I feel like that was one of the things where, um, reading profit first actually was helpful for me just to sort of reframe how I thought about some of that and was part of what ended up leading me towards being like, I need someone to help me be more up on this all the time. Um, but I was sort of curious your thought there on like, I feel like there's this coming back to the spectrum thing. There's like the total, uh, seat of your pants. Don't ever look at the numbers, just sort of live in the fantasy world. And then there's this other thing that I don't know how to put my finger on, but it's like, 
it feels something like an obsession with numbers and profit and like min maxing everything in a way that is mm. also unhealthy to the organization. And like, I've been thinking a lot about this interaction between like <coughs> profit and generosity and how we sort of like balance that in growing. And I think that's one of the things where the impartial third party can be helpful too, though, to go like, Hey man, like you're banking all this cash. Like, should you be taking care of your employees better? Should you be doing whatever else? So I was just curious, like your thoughts on profit and generosity in businesses and like what, how we think about that. Um, that's interesting. That's an interesting question. I, uh, in the middle of the pandemic, um, they, they launched a local chapter of conscious capitalism. And I had found out about it from another EO member and <clears throat> went to a couple of meetings. And, and I don't know if you're familiar with the, the movement, as it were, but it's essentially uh, saying that society uh, as a whole is, is a stakeholder in capitalism that you know what what you're doing as a capitalist as an entrepreneur has to have some bigger purpose than just making money um i don't i i haven't fully embraced the idea but i i think the the idea that if all you're pursuing is is profit or money as an entrepreneur um, you are going to be disappointed. You're not going to be fulfilled. You're never going to reach that point of fulfillment that you want. Mm -hmm. um, I, I, I've been working with the business coach, uh, executive coach for about 18 months. And one of the things he routinely asks the, the people that he, the entrepreneurs and executives that he works with is what, what does success look like for you? Like, you know, at the end of the day, because he's, 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 come across and coach so many people that that reach what they thought was supposed to be success and they it's it's unfulfilling mm. they're not um, they're not satisfied um, and and the flip side of it is you find a lot of people that aren't as successful as they think they should be uh, financially uh, or or entrepreneurially like the business hasn't grown or you know it hasn't reached the potential that you thought it was that that are are still satisfied because of the impact that they're making um and i think that that's very important because you can you can have business success you can be profitable and still not be personally satisfied mm -hmm. um and and it's easy to get sucked into that benchmark uh, that measure measuring stick of I've, I've reached a million dollars in revenue or I've reached a half a million dollars in profit or whatever that, that is. Um, yeah. I don't know if that answered your question. No, I mean, I think it's all, it's in that same world of like, um, on some level, you know, I think you're saying like, what for, you know, like that's something mm -hmm. that I've definitely seen where people, I was talking to someone recently who was like, oh, they were talking about their goal for their business. And I was like, I want to do this commercial work and that and this and that. And the goal is eventually um, to be able to like have enough money to make my own stuff. It's like, okay, mm -hmm. like that's a fair goal. 
do you know what that is? Because like, it's really easy to quickly lose sight of that and then just go more, 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 more forever, you know? And I think that's something that I've seen a lot of, of us lo lose sight of is like, you can always go more, right? And so at what point do you go like, okay, how am I not just growing for the sake of growing, but growing mm -hmm. in a way that is investing in the people around me, deepening like our mm -hmm. own networks and connections. And because it's not just, and I think too, that's the thing that's maybe, I'd be curious, you're ex as a more experienced entrepreneur yourself, I think when younger people, and I know myself when I was younger, first get into that, like starting to see more money than you're used to, it's like, oh yeah, a million dollars a year would be awesome. And then it's like, well, there's potentially exponentially more other stuff that comes with that, you know? And so like, we have to figure out like, where do you really want to be? I, I have friends who do a couple million dollars a year in revenue with their production companies and are like way more fried all the time than I ever care to be. And so it's like, that's not necessarily my goal. <laughs> well, one, one of the very first um, learning events I went to uh, for entrepreneurs organization, uh, Vern Harnish spoke. And if, if you don't know who Vern Harnish is, he's, He's an author. Uh, he's his moniker is he's the growth guy. Um, I, I highly recommend his book, uh, The Rockefeller Habits or Scaling Up, which is the the second version of it. But he asked this group of entrepreneurs, and by definition, everybody in that room had a, a business that was at least a million dollars in revenue. Uh, or, or more. And um, he asked that group of entrepreneurs, uh, he asked us, well, how many of you think back about uh, how if you were half the size you are now, you would be making much more money and much less stress? And everybody in the room raised their hand, right? Because they remember what it was like before you know, when they were smaller and more profitable and, and fewer headaches. And <clears throat> the truth is, you know, the, a, a business, every business has a, a growth curve until they reach a plateau. Yeah. And that plateau requires them to change a lot of things in their business and and they and them personally to start growing again and go to the next level. It's the whole concept of what what got you here is not going to get you there. Right. And a, a lot of people reach that plateau and they're they're looking back down the hill and they're looking up the hill and they're like, "You know what? I'm fine right here." And I think there's this some sense of like there's some shame in that like you know, you shouldn't be satisfied with, with just that. But why why not? I mean, you know, I, I've seen a lot of entrepreneurs that have gotten to that that level and they're like looking at the next one. They're like, you know what? I'm good. I, and, and that's awesome. I, if, if I can help you find the clarity to say I'm good right where I am rather than going off on this journey and realizing you didn't have what it took, because um, it's hard. I, I will tell you this. The last um, four years, we have really been working on taking our business to that next plateau. And it required us not only to shrink, 
we 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 shrunk our business about 25% top line revenue we uh, shrunk people uh, we shrunk clients we we did wholesale changes in what we were doing and uh, I would say from the personal growth that I've had to do uh, as well as the work that we've had to do in the business it it was harder than starting the business yeah it, it, it you know and maybe that's just the passage of time but um, it, it certainly wasn't wasn't easier right well and that's one of those things I would, I would be curious your thoughts too because I I feel like you guys must see so many books to have a better sense of this. I'm always shocked, maybe less so now, but I have always been shocked when I've realized like how hard some of the numbers swing where like when I was starting out, it was like, oh, a million dollars in revenue is a ton of money. But a lot of businesses aren't doing, there are a lot of businesses that can do a million dollars in revenue and that's not a whole lot of profit. And there are businesses that are doing $150,000 a year and walking with over a hundred of it. Um, right. And that whole thing that's like bigger isn't always better. I was talking to a guy I know who they were doing, I want to say a lot of big music videos. I might be misremembering this story, but they did something like a million dollars of big label music videos in a year. And he was like, our profit at the end of the year was zero dollars. And I was like, that's not a great business model. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to make it up on volume, right? Yeah. yeah. And uh, I had heard, I don't know if this was true. I had heard a while ago that the airlines run on something like a 2 or 3% average margin. Do you know if that's true? I don't know the specifics, but I know it's thin. And I know that, you know, I, I don't remember the last time I looked at this. It was maybe five, maybe 10 years ago that through that point uh, of modern aviation, commercial aviation, there was only one company one airline that had actually made money, and that was Southwest. Everything, everybody else, it was loss. Wow. Cumulatively, billions of dollars. Yeah. Yeah. It's crazy how you can be doing... I mean, I know a lot of companies that have done a lot of great work, but have sort of been like structurally not set up in a way that was sustainable. And I think that's one of the things that's like, to me, a big part of that feels like it's this sort of reductionist approach in some of the ways that people focus on purely reducing expenses without doing the front end work, whether it's on the sales side, the positioning side, whatever else. But like, there's this thing that was going around our industry for a little bit. It probably still is, but where, you know, sort of the way a lot of this stuff works is production company gets a job. They hire a bunch of subcontractors to go do the job. And there's like a producer in the middle that's sort of handling all the logistics and the deal, the mm -hmm. production companies were making with the producer is, um, we have line item budgets for all of these, uh, line items and every dollar that you save on a line item will split with you, which at first glance makes sense. And if you're a really smart person, like a really, uh, deep integrity and can play the game well person, maybe not a bad idea, but short term, what it did was it turned every producer into raptors that just went there mm -hmm. trying to eviscerate everyone in the industry and it destroyed everyone's, not everyone's, but it destroyed a lot of relationships and reputations because you're like niggling everyone over 50 bucks 
And, right. and it's like, in the grand scheme of this, this wasn't worth it. You know, like you should have just charged mm -hmm. an extra couple thousand dollars up front or whatever it was. And so I guess that's another thing I would be curious on, like your thoughts on the back end of when do you go, okay, we need to cut costs. And when do you go, okay, this business needs to figure out how to like drive more because cutting is unhealthy at this point, you know? Well, I, I think... I think that cost cutting, whatever that that looks like, is a, a limited strategy. It, it has a, a limited return. In other words, there are some expenses that you literally can't cut or can't cut further without the business stopping. And so there's this law of diminishing return on just cutting expenses. Not that it's a bad strategy. I mean, I, I think it's something to always put into your uh, process, your financial process, and evaluating yourself against your peers. Uh, you know, looking at the financial data compared to your peers. Are your peers able to do it with less money? Okay, that might be a, a, a starting point to a conversation of maybe we do spend too much here and there. But to me... The much bigger question is, is the value creation, because that is unlimited. There, you know, you can cut expenses. If, if you've got $100,000 in your business expenses in a year, the most you can cut is $100,000. And you can't cut $100,000. But for, for illustration's sake, you, the most you can cut is $100,000. But on the value side, you can create millions. There's no limit to how much value you can create. And so when, when we work with, with clients on the, on the financial side, we're looking real heavy on the margins, uh, the gross margin particularly, and looking at things like the labor efficiency ratio to see if you're getting the right amount of margin out of your employees. Because that's, that's what drives the, the real profit um, of a business. And it also helps you make those decisions of, well, is it time to hire somebody? Are we, are we, or are we, uh, are we potentially burning out our people because we're, you know, our labor efficiency is way too high. We're either not paying these people enough or, or we're working them too hard. Right. Um, so I don't even remember the original question, but. Did I answer it? Yeah, I mean, I think it's just sort of this topic of, you know, races to the bottom, which it's like you can mm -hmm. get efficient and you can get efficient. I was thinking about this recently, though, like, I think it's also easy to get sort of like defeatist about it. Like people in our industry will say like, oh, it's just a race to the bottom. And, and whenever I hear that, I think of like the fast food industry, right? That it's like at some point in the last few years, you hit, hit like... McDonald's and Taco Bell and whoever else sort of maxing out the like <laughs> food per dollar speed ratio right. to the bottom level and then throw in some sawdust and you know we're good right we've we've cut it down to there's no one can beat us at this game anymore we have the scale we have all these things and then you get Chipotle and you get these other like people start to find the new things they value that end up coming out on top 
And I think that's something that like we really try to focus on now is like, I don't really care about the race to the bottom. I care about what like the next opportunity is. And I think it's really easy when you're just looking at the people around you to be like, oh, well that person did something good cheaper. So now I have to figure out how to do something better, cheaper again. And it's like that race ends eventually with like one big dog who can afford to play that game. You know, it's like, you're not going to beat Walmart at their game. You're not going to beat McDonald's at their game. Exactly. And, and, and the, the, the funny thing about that is McDonald's and Walmart didn't start out as being the low-cost provider. Right. They, they just got there because they had that volume and size. And so for an entrepreneur starting out and saying, well, I'm going to be the low-cost provider, and that's how I'm, that's going to be my value proposition, uh, you got to have something pretty unique. <laughs> you, and and we're, we're talking about, like, in this day and age, like a new technology uh, it, it's it's not going to be like McDonald's, which you know was a a a, a different uh, food option than was existed at the time. It wasn't. It didn't start out as the cheap provider. It was just something different. It was cheaper, but it wasn't. You know. So uh, yeah, I, I I think in. And, and I, it's interesting, culturally, in the United States, I, I've seen this where the, the idea of cheap um, has been kind of perceived as a negative. Like, you know, it, 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 but, but other cultures, it's like it's expected that they're going to negotiate. They're, gonna, they're gonna, always going to be uh, asking for a discount. Um, but as, as, as we have, as a country, become more and more wealthy, um, the, the idea of cheap is, is like really less and less important. And, and, and I don't mean to belittle poverty. I don't, I don't mean that because, the, you know, there, there are people that that, that does matter to. But uh, if, if you want to start a business, it's, it's not going to be trying to take a few dollars away from people that shop at Walmart who don't have any money to give anyway. It's, it's going to be from uh, creating value for somebody that has more disposable dollars. Right. Totally. Yeah. I, I think that's like such a big thing. Just the idea that like it's the, the, the state that people are at there are so many opportunities, but usually the most apparent opportunity is like the bottom of the pyramid when you're starting out, but the bottom of the pyramid is also where the most pressure is. You know, it's like people don't have disposable incomes. If you're trying to help, you know, I hear a lot of people that are like, we want to help mom and pop businesses with media. And I was like, mom and pop businesses don't have money for media. It's just like sort of the reality of where a lot of those places are at, you know? And so it's like, I mean, that's a, honorable goal in some ways but like you have to figure out the actual logistics of like is this feasible and a lot of the right. times you know i think especially i don't know about you or, or other people listening but i definitely grew up in a, a household that sort of valued frugality and i think i just culturally picked that up and when i came into business i thought that cheaper was better all the time and i had to quickly learn the hard way that oh there's massive parts of the economy that don't think like that at all and money's a totally different thing to them not everyone's a price buyer you know right money is a tool to obtain to, to use it, it it's it's 
Yeah, and a book that I read mm, at least 20 years ago, it was very early on in my business, was uh, Rich Dad, Poor Dad by Robert Kiyosaki. And I I know it's been a long time since it's been published, but to me, I recommend it to every entrepreneur because it addresses just that. It addresses the mindset about money uh, and and opportunity, really, um, that we learn from... Our, our family of origin. And, and if, uh, you know, I was fortunate, I, I grew up in an entrepreneurial family. Um, my, my father and, and his brother and his father owned a business together. And um, strangely enough, you know, that, that there was a lot of good that, that about that, that was enjoyable. But I think what motivated me to do what I'm doing today is watching that failure, the financial failure, and and by extension, the familial failure, like the business was what was keeping everybody together, um, that motivates me to do what I do for entrepreneurs because the, the reality is, is my, my family story didn't have to end that way. It, it, it was just... You know, in their situation, it was they were making a lot of money and they didn't, they did not uh, use it wisely. So uh, when the the money went away, they didn't have a business. Um, and so, yeah, knowing what your your whole why you feel, why you think the way you do, is 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 critical and. Our mind's ability to deceive itself is, is fa- it, it fascinates me. I mean, you know, like other people can see like, Christian, why, wh- why are you doing this? Have you not seen that this is not right? Or like, and, and like everybody else can see it, but I can't see it. You know, that blind spot. Right. Um, and I think having... You know whether whether it's a financial advisor and somebody like Core that that can can do that, but but just having a another entrepreneurial relationship where you've got somebody that can say, you know, Evan, I I I don't know if you can see this. Right. This is what I see. Right. And you you have trust enough to listen to it and 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 not be defensive about it. Right. Uh, you don't have to agree. I mean, but just someone being able to hold that up and say, you know, I I don't know if you see this. Right. No, I mean, I think that's that's huge, and I think that's one of the big reasons that I honestly try to send so many people your guys' way is it's just you don't know what you don't know. And I think I'm, I'm the kind of person who tends to be pretty brave with the questions I ask, and it's one of the things that I think I've loved most about what I've gotten to do is that we get to hang out with lots of really successful people, and I'll just ask people really bold questions at lunch and stuff. Um, so I've learned a lot about business and finances and everything from people we've been working with. But if you don't do that and you're not actively like reading and seeking out a lot of information, and I think there's a lot of people in our field, they don't really care to be business people, which I get, but it's like you need some outside perspective because this stuff can go sideways on you really quick if you're just sort of basing off your assumptions from how you ran your budget in high school right. at a multi-hundred thousand right. dollar a year level, you know? 
And maybe right. not even at a multi-hundred thousand dollar a year level. Maybe you're only clearing 30 grand a year. I mean, I know people who are clearing 30 grand off their over $100,000 a year. And it's like, well, maybe we need to reassess some of the decisions that are being made here, you know? Because, like, you're working super hard. You're super good at what you do. And I think that's one of the other things that's, like, crazy the first time you realize it. I've had a few really good conversations with, like, up-and-coming people now is the first time you realize that someone's doing something that's like close to what you were doing for next to nothing. And like, I remember one of the first times that I, I saw a project and sort of got to see behind the curtain on it. And it was the kind of thing that I had probably recently done at the time for like $4,000 for a client. And someone had gotten like $60,000 to do what I would call worse work. And I was like, right. Boy, my whole paradigm about how this stuff works is messed up, you know? <laughs> and so, like, the information is just so valuable and getting to talk to, to you guys about, like, hey, here's the books. Here's what I see. Here's the questions. I don't know how this works. Does this look right? And having someone go, like, either, yeah, everything's fine. Here's what we can focus on. Or, no, this isn't right. And here's what we can do about it is, uh, is really so valuable because otherwise you're just wandering in the dark. Yeah, I, I, I don't know if you've... There, there's a, I think it's a Japanese uh, phrase, but it's translated as uh, the beginner's mindset. And, you know, it, it's even, even though you've had a lot of experience and, and done things for several years, approaching things with this beginner's mindset, like you don't know anything. Um, two examples of that, I, I have... One of my, my colleagues that is in entrepreneur's organization, he had a, a nine-figure exit of his business. He's 45, something like that. Um, he comes to our learning events, and he participates and takes notes just like he was a brand-new member. He's always wanting to learn. And there's no reason for him to have to learn. He's achieved all the financial success generations of his family will, will need. It's just that mindset. Uh, and, and, and the other is I, I went to an EO learning event where uh, uh, the presenter was a gentleman by the name of Greg Crabtree, who is a CPA. Um, he's written a couple of books uh, called Simple Numbers and Simple Numbers 2.0, which I strongly recommend. <laughs> And he was teaching a class that I'd actually, this is the fourth time I'd been to this class. And I, I'm like, I could teach this class, right? I, I you know, um, and I go and I took more notes on, on that day than I did at any learning event I'd been to in 10 years. I mean, why? I, because I had a learner's, I had, I had a beginner's mindset. I didn't say, well, oh, I know everything he knows. And, you know, some of the things that he brought to the, to the presentation, I'm like, that's brilliant. I'm like, why didn't I think of that? Yeah. Um, and, you know, it's, it, it's, it's about being humble. It, it, you know, you, 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 you don't know everything. Right. And uh, you're never going to know everything. You're never going to reach perfection. You're, you're, it's a journey to do that. Right. Well, and I think that's one of, uh, 
and this is the last time I'll throw in my shameless people should call you plug. But like that was one of the other things that I really valued was getting in the side of like, okay, let's talk bookkeeping and taxes, but then also being able to go like, okay, let's talk about like long-term investment, wealth, retirement type stuff, which mm -hmm. is another thing people don't really talk about in our whole industry and is really weird sometimes what we do. And being able to have someone who is like, on the inside of the actual business numbers who can also look at all of that and go like, okay, let's talk about what we can allocate and what makes sense and what the trade-offs are. Because I think that's something that just for so long, so many of these things for so long just felt overwhelming to me. Like I heard people talk about like S corp elections and payroll. And I was like, that just sounds complicated. And then, you know, setting aside investment money that sounds complicated i never know what i'm going to owe for taxes all this stuff is complicated and the minute you get someone to just help you start wading through it it gets really simple really fast actually and it was like oh mm -hmm. we can systemize all of this stuff we can figure out how to handle it these guys are experts at all of this stuff and like i've had a few people who have been like oh you know I don't, I don't know off the top of my head exactly what it is now, but it's like, oh, that like couple thousand dollars a year sounds like a lot of money. And it's like, man, but in the scope of your career, the amount of money it can save you and make you and the stress it'll reduce for you and the time it'll save for you, it's the like one of the best couple thousand dollars a year that I spend. And like I said, and maybe this isn't the way it'll work out for everyone, but like year one, I saved more money on my taxes than I paid you guys to help me fix them. <laughs> so it's like, I'm already right. out ahead and then all the other right. stuff is gravy. Um, but yeah, I think that like, cause the, the wealth and investing side of it, which I don't know that I've really talked about on social and I didn't initially know about when I first came to you guys that you do is also super clutch. Cause I definitely know a lot of people who are like, you know, I don't know. I don't care to be an armchair investment expert personally. Like I have a lot of buddies who like want to play around in crypto and I'm like, that's fine. I don't, I don't want to gamble on stuff I don't know enough about. And I don't care to learn enough about that to feel confident in it. Um, but like having people like you to be like, okay, what's, what are the options here and what makes sense is super helpful instead of, you know, going off your latest Twitter tip to like throw a thousand bucks in some new thing, you know, like having an actual long-term plan that you feel educated about. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that I, I, and the, and the reason why we got into the wealth management side of the business is that, um, you look at most entrepreneurs and virtually all of their net worth is either in or dependent on their business. Um, and you know, they may own a house and, and that, but like, if you gave them a $10,000 windfall, they'd invest it in their business. That, that's that's where, their, where their investments are. But <clears throat> I've seen it where having, I, I call it a side bet, you know, like having a, a taking some chips off the table mm -hmm. and investing it in something other than your business. Uh, um, I, we had a, a client that they were approaching retirement and they were planning on selling their business and um, the pandemic happened and the industry just fell out and their business was literally worthless. And um, because they had taken some money off the table um, and, and invested, 
they were comfortable in their retirement. They were comfortable to go ahead and say, okay, we can go ahead and retire. We don't need to worry about the business not surviving or you know, surviving the pandemic and trying to build the business back up and sell it because we don't need it. Um, and, you know, I understand most entrepreneurs are still going to bet on themselves. That's just the nature of the beast. Uh, I would say probably 25 to 30% of uh, entrepreneurs do do uh, other investments other than their business. Um, and I get it. Yeah, it's hard. I mean, I know for me, like, you definitely have bets that don't pay off, but it is hard. Like, I, I, I remember struggling with it a few years ago where people were like, oh, you should, like, start investing money and, you know, talk about percentage rates. And I've told this story publicly before, but, like, me and my buddy bought a camera and it was $34,000. So we split it. We went, like, 17K deep each, uh, rented it just on our own stuff for, like, two and a half years, sold it for... 30, I think, uh, two and a half years later, and we netted 168 in two and a half years. So I was nice. like, that's a little bit better than like an IRA in two and a half years, right. but like that's those are the trade offs, right? And so, but then it's hard when you've once you've done that, now it's like, well, do I take my next 17 grand and do I put it in a safe long-term right. investment or do I go bet it all on black back in the world that I know? And I don't know that it has to be all one or the other, but I think that's where some of our brains get fried where you have an experience like that. And then you hear like 7% or whatever. And you're like, well, that sounds boring. <laughs> well, and, and I, I think it was, I think it was Robert Kiyosaki in, in Rich Dad, Poor Dad. He, or maybe he had a second book on the four quadrants of investing where he talks about stocks and bonds and, you know, passive investments. And, you know, he, he basically was saying that one of the big things about doing investments in publicly traded companies and in and, and th and that realm is you don't have any control. You know, as an entrepreneur, you have ultimate control and you know exactly what's going on. Uh, in in a in a publicly traded company in the investment world, you don't know, right? You know, and you know, I'm not saying that there there's uh, not transparency in the system, but I mean, look at Enron. I mean, that that was the biggest company on Wall Street, and it went bankrupt, right? And you know, nobody had any control over their money in that situation, and and so I I don't I don't I. I'm not like here to tell people, you know, definitely you have to do that, but at least consider it, you know, if nothing else, consider taking some money and investing it in, in like real estate. Like uh, if your business needs a uh, place to operate rather than rent, buy a building and, you know, get a bigger building than you need and lease part of it out, um, you know, have some kind of balance to the risk that is what you're doing because owning a business uh, is extremely risky. Right. Um, you know, I, I think one of the things that I, I truly believe is that the majority of entrepreneurs are not being rewarded for the risk and the work that they're putting in. Right. You know, if, if you look at the time that they spend and the risk that they take, the financial return is not what it should be. Right. And I, I think we just kind of, 
as a, as a group, we just kind of accept it. And it's like, no, you, you, you work too hard and have too much at risk to not get paid what you're worth. Right. Well, and that's one of the, like, I don't know. I feel like something that was massive for me, just even in the last few years was realizing like some of those bottlenecks where like the last, since COVID I took the time to like really invest in, uh, business reading and training. Um, I did like a few big sales workshops. I did some stuff on pricing and like I spent maybe a couple thousand dollars and to your thing on like, you can only cut a hundred thousand dollars of your hundred thousand dollars of expenses that like, what did I spend last year? I probably spent like $3,500 on sales training and it turned into probably a hundred thousand dollars in free money pretty quickly. That was like, Oh, these are jobs we were getting already that we're now closing at a better rate that allows us to like invest in the people, like do all these other things. And so, yeah, that sense of like, it's, uh, I feel like there's this idea that like, what's your bottleneck, you know, that it's like, maybe, maybe Mm. you don't need more gear. Maybe you don't need more real estate right now. Maybe you just need to learn how to like talk about what you do better as silly as that sounds, because that is a thing when you're interacting with people, or maybe you're doing all of that really well and you need to just sock a little money into some side bets on some safer investments. Like it could be any of these things, but it all comes back to that question of like, having a third party look at it and go like, oh, you have half a million dollars in assets and you're doing $100,000 a year in revenue. We need to figure out how to do something different with your business right, right now. You know, like you're, right. you're, you're a little lopsided and having mm-hmm. someone help you look at it and go like, okay, you're, you're selling, you know, again, productions that are, you have a 10% margin on and like maybe that's not the best thing for you right now, but getting that outside perspective is so helpful to go, okay, where can I invest? Because usually it's whatever we've done in the past is what we invest in more, but that doesn't solve the problem that's causing that plateau that you need to solve to get past where you currently are. I, I think entrepreneurs as a class, um, especially professional services. So you, me, um, th- they have a tendency to leave money on the table because I don't know if it's just fear uh, of like not getting the business or not getting the work. Um, but, but I think it's more about, they really don't understand the value that they're bringing. And I think having a really clear idea of what the problem you're solving for your client or customer is and what its value is to them. Right. Uh, really frees up your ability to extract that value, you know, because if, if you can deliver something to them that is worth $20,000, do you think they'd be happy to pay you five? Well, of course, all day long. But we don't, we don't sit down and think about it from the client's perspective or the customer's perspective of what is it that is really important to them? What are they trying to get out of it? And what is the value that they're deriving from it?